electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Julia Borston, and you're listening to CNBC's Tech Check. Our show is live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. Good Thursday morning. Welcome to Tech Check. I'm Carl Quintanilla with John Fort and Deirdre Bosa. Today, some early results in a new $20 billion deal sending Adobe plunging today. We'll talk about that. Is a deal-making renaissance coming? Something to debate. And Netflix, a rare outperformer today. Why Evercore says buy now as shares pop more than 5%, although the Nasdaq down about 1.3% as yields today remain stubbornly high. Guys, we got to start with the deal of the day, and that is Adobe shares plunging after releasing earnings this morning ahead of schedule. The top line did miss. Bottom line was a beat. Guidance for the current quarter a bit mixed, overshadowed, of course, by the company announcing it will acquire rival design platform Figma for about $20 billion. Sean Tanunia Ryan did join us on Squawk on the Street today for a closer look. Here's what he said. The deal is really all about the top line and accelerating top line. You know, we're an extremely profitable company. And what we have said is we have some aggressive goals in terms of uh, being able to make this accretive in year three, which is rapid, uh, as well as driving top line growth. So, you know, I think from the perspective of shareholders, what we've said is we will offset, uh, you know, dilution uh, while the transaction's underway. But we believe that it rapidly uh, actually enables us uh, to accelerate our bottom line EPS as well. Adobe planning to integrate some features from Photoshop into Figma, and that cash and stock deal is expected to close in 2023. John, I'd love to get your thoughts, especially um, given, I don't know, the argument that they are paying quite a rich multiple, even for evaluation that has come down. They are paying a rich multiple, especially when you consider um, <laughs> that this is more than 10% of Adobe's market cap. But let me, let me sit back. I'm not saying it's a rich multiple because it's not worth it. This is potentially a transformative deal. And if we think about the size of it, this is a little smaller than Microsoft Nuance. Um, sorry, a little bit bigger than Microsoft Nuance. I think a little smaller than Facebook WhatsApp and kind of in league of Microsoft LinkedIn or even Salesforce Slack with that $20 billion price there. Uh, and given Adobe size, that's significant, but also, Figma has managed to both be uh, important design-wise to a productive community, to a, to a kind of product design community, to the software community. Uh, so it, it's important design-wise, but it's also a productivity app, which starts to potentially get it into some competition with Microsoft. Like in Figma, a lot of workers will build workflows and ways to hand off design work from those who are doing more of the interface design to those who are doing the coding. So with Adobe moving more into productivity, there's a potentially larger addressable market, but there's also a software language issue here, right? Figma has some simplified ways uh, of designing that are different from what you do in Photoshop, in InDesign, right, in, in Dreamweaver and some of those uh, other yeah. uh, things that Adobe has built or acquired. So how they integrate all that D and make it make sense is going to be important. But the, the addressable market yeah. is opening up here in a way similar to when Adobe moved into marketing with the Omniture mm -hmm. buy. And I think a lot of investors probably are going to have to take a while to understand that. You know, I think you said something really key there, and that is it had become a hugely important product. I wonder, too, the question is, did it become a threat to Adobe? Um, there was this great article over the summer by Jordan Novet, a CNBC reporter that sits here in San Francisco, and he talked about how Figma had become this sort of cult product within Microsoft. People really, really wanted to use it, and it competes with one of Adobe's product, the XD program. And a lot of the notes and a lot of the complaints over the last few months that you hear about Adobe from Wall Street analysts is that the competitive landscape is changing, and a younger demographic of designers and engineers don't necessarily want to use Adobe as much as they want to use some of these newer products. So did Adobe have to make this move, John? Um, was the competitive landscape and what Wall Street has sort of been valuing the company at, which is a lot lower, did this make this a defensive move from Adobe? Is it possible they overpaid? Well, I mean, it, it's 
sure, it's possible. They overpaid if they don't integrate it well and grow it according to plan. But we, we can talk about this being a threat to Adobe. This is being used inside Microsoft, which makes productivity software, yeah. uh, which, which makes, <laughs> right? Which, I mean, it's also a threat to Microsoft, potentially, if somebody who's less productivity focused gets a hold of it yeah. and builds share in that team productivity uh, atmosphere. So yes, it is potentially a threat to Adobe. Figma was on its own. This is a company that's growing annualized recurring revenue, doubling it year over year to uh, 400 million in, in the current year expected. But it's also potentially, if, if this falls into the wrong hands, whether those be <laughs> Salesforce, Microsoft, or anybody well, who's big enough to acquire it, then they could potentially move in on yeah. Adobe. But here's Adobe Shantanu, who's been you know, pretty prudent and careful about M&A. We were talking about that at the beginning of the pandemic, saying this is a big swing that we need to take. You can imagine, yeah. we talked about this earlier, John, Microsoft, you know, wanting to get a figment to its own hands. But, of course, the regulatory landscape, it's already trying to get a deal done, a much bigger one with Activision Blizzard. Um, so why not give it to a partner like Adobe so that, like you said, it's not in different hands, like a Google, for example, or somewhere else where it might create a problem and more competitive threat? Yeah, we haven't even gotten to some of the uh, the more deeper probes uh, that uh, Activision, uh, Microsoft are getting in Brussels and London. Uh, for more on what this means for software overall, though, let's bring in CNBC contributor Plexo Capital fa founding managing partner, Lo Tony, who's here on set. It's great to have you, man. Welcome. Thanks uh, for having me. Shantanu had said that valuations were getting a little more reasonable on the <laughs> Q2 call. Is this? Do you think this is reasonable? Well, I think we should just understand what Dee pointed out, which is this is a significant was a significant competitive threat to Adobe. You know, the design factor in everyday applications and enterprise applications cannot be understated. When we look at the number of designers that now are a part of product teams, that ratio of designers is increasing. It shows the fact that design really matters. In fact, you could argue design is table stakes. And the collaborative nature of Figma really speaks to the way that this younger generation of product designers like to work. Very collaborative. We saw significant tailwinds to this product during the pandemic. In fact, when you look at the design community that was polled, maybe a third of people were using Figma after the pandemic two-thirds were using Figma. So this was a significant threat that I don't think could be understated. Now, Dee also pointed out the Microsoft factor and the regulatory aspect of Activision. Regulators are going to take a look at this one, too, because this is really going to consolidate a lot of the people that are building products that are design-related. But it doesn't sound like you think Adobe had much choice other than to make and uh, close this deal. I don't think they really had a choice. I think this was very much both a defensive move but also an eye towards this trend where design rules and design matters. The best products that are available, whether it's for consumers or enterprise, have the most elegant design. It's table stakes. Uh, Lo, good morning. Yeah, it's defensive, but it's also more than that, isn't it? Because you've got some Adobe products now, many of them across Creative Cloud, that have collaboration features built into them. They've been doing these updates where you can you know, share versions of a product with your team, but Figma has managed to put that productivity experience and that team experience more built into the interface, so it's a place where people who aren't design-centric felt more comfortable. If Adobe can expand its enterprise share uh, there, beyond designers, but as part of the design process, that's different from what they've had with documents, with Acrobat, that's different from certainly what they've had in marketing, and, and their addressable market gets quite a bit larger, doesn't it? Yeah, John, this is something that your comment really speaks to, I think, going all the way back to when this company was founded, maybe over five years ago. One of my good friends, Adam Nash, who's the best product person that I know, we work together at eBay, he was one of the early investors. Congrats to him, by the way. And what he pointed out was that everyone was missing the fact that people thought the design community was small. In fact, if you look statistically, it probably only showed there were about 100,000 designers in the workforce at that time. But what everyone missed was this aspect that was just brought up on your point, which is that the product Figma is so simple to use, it brings in people that are not designers as well. So from the initial ideation of a product to the first design, to then handing that off to the engineers, to then all of the people that need to be involved in selling that product, everyone can get involved in that process collaboratively, over the cloud, 
so you don't have any issues with trying to determine like, okay, which version am I on? You don't have to download any software and install it on your laptop. It's, you know, these products that Adobe typically uses, they're actually very difficult for people that are not designers to use. So the collaborative nature, I think to your point, actually expands the market where everyone can become a designer. So what does this mean for Asana and Atlassian, which are doing similar things, software, for teams, productivity software for teams, what does it mean for larger players uh, like Microsoft and Salesforce, Microsoft with Teams, Salesforce now with Slack, that would like some of that design conversation happening within their environments? Yeah, you know, I think when we look at the process of designing products, it's more design-centric. And when we think about Slack, and you know, Figma allows integration of Slack, you know, there's this aspect of collaboration that is specific to this use case. And so I think, is there room for some of these other products to exist, some of them to incorporate in? Absolutely. But what Figma nailed is the design of the product for design. And I think it's gonna be very difficult for another product that was built for the ground up for another use case to try to encroach on their territory. You're kind of pointing to two other companies I was wondering about, and that is Box and Dropbox. Those are two other companies that, you know, they were made their names on being pure cloud storage companies, but they've been trying to get into this collaboration space, and investors haven't really bought that story yet. Are you pointing to them as well versus just a Teams, an Atlassian, rather, and a Asana? Yeah, no, I, I think, look, I really like the way that Figma built out their product. I like the way that they built out a product that was really geared towards community almost by the design of the product itself. And that was able to actually get the groundswell of momentum to pull in all of these people. And then layering in again that point that John made about the fact that non-designers can also get involved in the process as well. Hey, Lo, finally, um, what is the risk that Adobe actually makes Sigma worse for those that love it? Um, I was seeing some tweets from some developers um, saying that the whole point of Figma was that it was not an Adobe product. They pointed to another acquisition, um, Fireworks, and said that, you know, Adobe left major bugs and didn't fix stuff and eventually discontinued it. Um, do you think that that's a real fear for um, that sort of cult status it currently has? Yeah, look, these are always some of the challenges that comes for that, that post-M&A integration. The promise is sold to the shareholders, but typically the customers in this scenario, which you point out, this passionate community, that's always the biggest risk, is that the, in this case, this was the anti-Adobe. And so the fear for those types of passionate users is that, oh my goodness, the company that we didn't like acquired our baby, and now they're not gonna know how to treat it and treat it well. Fascinating, Gordon Haskett says uh, Figma was founded 10 years ago by a couple of kids who had just graduated from Brown, and they're now getting $20 billion. It shows you the strength of some of these startups. Uh, Lo, thanks so much, great insight into uh, Figma today, Adobe, and software in general. John? Yeah, and uh, we we'll keep checking on Adobe. Um, it was trading down on this, I should mention, uh, down about 17 plus percent. Heading in the other direction this morning is Netflix, up more than 4%. Our next guest upgrading the stock to outperform this morning with a new survey indicating more than 20% of churned users will return to Netflix once a cheaper option becomes available. Joining us now, Evercore ISI Head of Internet Research, Mark Mahaney, on the CNBC Newsline. Mark, um, how much of this is good news that people will re return for a cheaper option or bad news that it takes a cheaper option to get them back? It's a good question, John. I think it's necessary news. But here's the way I'd phrase it. I, I think Netflix almost painted themselves into a premium price corner. I think they have the premium product when it comes to streaming in the market, but they've never given people really a discount plan. And over the years, we've tracked this for a decade, but really in the last five years, you've seen greater price sensitivity amongst Netflix uh, customers. It's the single biggest reason why people churn, why they don't come back, why they are considering churning. So this move kind of in one fell swoop, you get a way to potentially uh, increase ARPU, but more importantly, you get a way to retain subs better and a way to attract 
re-attract those subs who've turned off. The only real question I have is why didn't Netflix do this a year or two ago? But that's the past. I think this is one of the most identifiable catalysts in technology over the next 12 months. That's why we upgraded Netflix. Netflix seems to be promising with the cheaper option and the advertising component that they can achieve a sort of long tail scale within their business with premium prices, though. Do you buy that and why? Well, um, you know what, a, a real eye-opening moment for me and for investors, too, I think should have been earlier this year when we saw what the ARPU was, the ad revenue that the other streaming services were already generating. I mean, some of these services are generating 5 to $10 in ad revenue per user, and that's on top of their subscription prices. Well, wait a second. I, I don't see any particular reason why Netflix can't monetize just as well as some of those other services. And get this, they've got $220 million premium subscription customers worldwide. That's a prime audience, you know, kind of like Amazon Prime. You're, you're talking about uh, a, um, a global, like brands that want to launch uh, a new global campaign. Netflix is probably a great platform for them. So I don't have to believe that Netflix can get premium ad prices, but I bet you they can. Uh, the, the way the setup for me on the stock was simply that the market wasn't assuming any growth coming out of this ads business. I find it hard to believe that they can't get good growth. They can't get more subs. And there's a wild uh, upside case here. If they really execute well, if they really get those premium uh, dollars for global brand advertisers with a prime-like audience, I think there's a lot more ad revenue than even the bullish case lays out. So I, I, just, I think the risk-reward here is highly asymmetric. That's why we upgraded the stock. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, there's certainly been reports of large advertisers who would be on board, uh, and they've said so, Mark. But where do you think the street's tolerance is going to be for churn? And is there going to be pressure to inflate the content budget even more to make sure that churn remains, you know, reasonably suppressed? Well, churn, you know, Benny, for any subscription business, uh, Carl, like churn is kind of issue number one. If you can't manage churn, you can't run a successful subscription business. And, uh, and Netflix has done a decent job with this over time. But, you know, they have every year, as they've, every other year, as they've increased prices, they've increased their churn rates. It's, it's been an issue. And they've also had challenges, by the way, expanding into Asia Pacific, where I actually think an AVOD or an ad-supported model would actually do a lot better than a subscription model. So they're really, there are a lot of potential wins if Netflix executes well. The fact that they're paired up with Microsoft reduces some of that execution risk. The fact that they just hired, I think, some excellent, outstanding executives from Snap, I think, reduces that execution risk. So that's how we that's how we came away. Will Netflix be able to generate, you know, a couple of billion in ad revenue in, in three years? I think that's high probability. Could they generate over 10 billion in ad revenue? That's a possibility. And neither of these scenarios, by the way, either the probability or the possibility is in the shares. That's what makes the risk reward so interesting. Right. So, Mark, back to that piece about content spend. What do you think the trajectory is for Netflix over the next few years? Um, we've talked about this before, but a lot of the content has been bingeable, maybe more reality versus prestige TV. Uh, how do you think that looks going forward? Uh, they talked about one of the interesting things they said earlier this year was that they wanted to keep their content spent in the zip code of $17 billion. Netflix has never been a zip code company before. They were always amping up content spend each and every year, you know, 10 billion, 15 billion, up to 17 billion. My guess is that they do flatten it out for a year or two, but then they start increasing it again. If they're able to get these subs, these ad-supported subs onto the onto the service, it gives them more revenue with which to, you know, kind of continue the content flywheel that was so successful for them in the past. But I also want to uh, caveat all this by saying I, I don't expect this is not the Netflix of last decade when it was a monster stock with monster revenue growth. I don't think we get back to that. I just think we have a dislocated stock that has got a new growth uh, initiative. It's a rare catalyst in the space. That's why we're enthusiastic on it. And I think they can continue to up content spend over time. And they spend as much or more than just about anybody. That's why the content's better than just about anybody out there. Marco, I want to go broad for a moment. Uh, I know Adobe isn't exactly uh, squarely in your coverage universe, but this is a big uh, software deal that they're attempting, $20 billion to buy Figma. And Adobe does reach into Internet, into advertising with, uh, with their marketing plays. W what does this signal about this time in the market, even though Adobe's stock is way down from its highs and the valuation on Figma still by historically uh, historical standards pretty rich? Well, I'll just try to answer that this way, John, which is this is a tough time to make a bold initiative in uh, in advertising of any form as 
uh, advertising seems to be under increasing pressure. So, you know, it's a management team that's thinking pretty long term, that's making a major uh, advertising initiative now. But, you know, why not? Like, we should be thinking a year or two out. The ad market, I think, is going to get weaker before it gets better. So the, the, these kind of initiatives are going to, going to look worse, you know, we're going to look poorer or whatever over the next 6 to 12 months. But beyond that, you know, yes, you're tapping into new the, – the market for digital advertising is still well intact. They're creating new TAMs. They're expanding their total addressable markets. And, um, and some of this is just greenfield revenue opportunities for the companies. Uh, Adobe's done very well in this market. I think Netflix, you know, Netflix is going to go from zero to 100. Uh, now, it may take them three years, but mm-hmm. they'll go there uh, in advertising. So I, I find the space interesting. I know near term it's not. But I think okay. in, if you're willing to look out as a management team one to three years, you should absolutely be investing in, in digital advertising. Mark, appreciate that very much. Mark Mahaney on Netflix, which one, one of the top S&P gainers today. We do want to turn to the president making some comments about the, and appearing with negotiators who brokered that railway labor agreement. Let's take a listen. Well, good morning, everyone. As you might guess, I am very pleased <laughs> to announce a tentative labor agreement between that has been reached between the railroad workers and the railway companies. This agreement is a big win for America and for both, in my view. I want to thank the lead negotiators from the labor movement, the Brother of Locomotive Engineers, the trainmen, International Association of Sheet Metal and Air and Rail and Transportation Workers Union, and the other labor unions engaged. And this is a win for tens of thousands of rail workers and for their dignity and the dignity of their work. It's a recognition of that. During these early, dark, uncertain days of the pandemic, they showed up so every American could keep going. They worked tirelessly through the pandemic to ensure that families and communities got the deliveries they needed during these difficult few years. And because of the labor agreement, those rail workers will get better pay, a 24% wage increase over the next five years, improved working conditions, peace of mind around their health care by capping the cost that workers will have to pay, and it's about the right to go to a doctor or stay healthy and make sure you're able to have the care you can afford. It's all part of this agreement. They earned and deserve these benefits. And this is a great deal for both sides, in my view. The agreement is also a victory for railway companies. And I want to thank the lead negotiators from the railway, the National Railway Labor Conference and our major rail companies. These companies also played a, uh, a critical role in keeping America moving during the pandemic. And that's not hyperbole, it's a fact. With this agreement, railroad companies will be able to retain and recruit workers. They'll be able to continue to operate effectively as a vital piece of our economy. They're really the backbone of the economy. I have this visual image of rails being the backbone. I mean, literally, the backbone of the economy. So I thank the unions and the rail companies for negotiating in good faith. They've been up for 20 straight hours to that negotiation. And, uh, and for sticking with it, especially over the last few days. In fact, the negotiators here today, I don't think they've been to bed yet. So <laughs> I don't want to keep this very long and they're having to stand as besides. Together, we reached an agreement, you reached an agreement that will keep our critical rail system working and avoid disruptions of our economy. And I'm grateful, grateful for the members of the administration who work tirelessly on both sides to help get this done. I especially want to thank Labor Secretary Marty Walsh card-carrying union member and the first union labor secretary in decades for his tireless round-the-clock work. This agreement is validation, validation of what I've always believed. Unions and management can work together, can work together for the benefit of everyone. They're traveling now, uh, uh, a number of them up, but I want to thank Secretary of Transportation Pete Buttigieg and Agriculture Secretary Tom Vilsack we're deeply involved, along with, uh, I want to thank Deputy Labor Secretary Julie Sue, Director of the National Economic Council Brian Deese, and uh, the uh, Deputy National Director of Labor Celeste Drake for this uh, commitment and hard work. To the American people, this agreement can avert a significant damage that any shutdown would have brought. Our nation's rail system is the backbone of our supply chain. Everything you rely on, and it's hard to we realize this from everything from clean water to food to gas 
to every day, I mean, liquefied natural gas, to everything, every good that you need seems to end up on a rail getting delivered to where it needs to go. With unemployment still no record lows and signs of progress and lowering costs, this agreement allows us to continue to rebuild a better America with an economy that truly works for working people and their families. Today is a win, and I mean this sincerely, a win for America. So I want to thank you all for getting this done, both business and labor. Thank you, thank you, thank you, and may God protect our troops. Thank you so much. That is the president in the Rose Garden with negotiators who put that deal together uh, reportedly around 2.30 in the morning. Let's bring in Kayla Tausche, who's been following the story. Kayla, you can sort of see the messaging coming together. We got some compliments from uh, Leader McConnell today, comments about unions in Detroit yesterday, and now this uh, notion that we're literally making the trains run on time. Yeah, and certainly the administration and the unions and the railroads have averted the worst case situation. There will be some kinks in getting commerce fully back up to speed after some agricultural goods were slowed in their shipments and, and some hazardous materials were not shipped throughout the week as they awaited to see whether this deal would come together. White House officials say President Biden was frustrated throughout the course of this week in recent days that railroad companies simply wouldn't just offer the time off to these workers that they had been asking for for months. And in recent days, despite taking a neutral tone inside the negotiations, President Biden used his public appearances to call for union workers to get the credit that they deserve, even in some points name checking the business roundtable on the Chamber of Commerce for their suggestion that Congress should get involved. And while this is a win, as the president says, it is also a face saving agreement for the administration. The impact on the economy from this shutdown, if it were to happen, would have been large. Jason Furman, a former White House economist, said that this would be the biggest, most rapid, most devastating impact to the supply chains that one could possibly imagine. But this is also an administration who has talked up its ties to labor and not being able to broker a resolution would have been equally damaging. Guys? Kayla, I wonder how you think the White House is thinking about uh, wages overall. Obviously, they're supportive of union efforts to keep wages uh, becoming even stronger, but that is clearly something that's uh, resulting in a headwind for the Fed at least. It's a double-edged sword for sure, and the White House has had a hard time distilling the message on wages and has gotten a lot of pushback at even the slightest suggestion that wages should go down in order for inflation to get in check. When you talk to the unions about what this deal actually does, they note that these wage increases of 24 percent, that's not 24 percent in one pop. It's about 14 percent at immediately, some of which is retroactive pay, but this is over the course of five years, and they argue that these workers went to work during the pandemic. They they could not work from home. They had to forego pay increases for the last three years when other industries saw significant pay increases and that this is their due that is coming to them after several years. All right, Kayla, thank you. Kayla Tausche. Turning back to software, I spoke with several CEOs this week about what areas they're spending more in from a strategic perspective despite recent cutbacks and spending pressure across tech. Here's what the CEOs of Nutanix and MongoDB shared with me. A lot of people in the, in, in, the, in the customer base are still running on legacy infrastructures. They can save a ton of money from a TCO perspective and they can reduce their operating costs quite a bit if they just modernize their infrastructure and adopt a cloud model. Ironically, right, in this kind of an environment, it puts even more pressure. If you're up for a storage refresh, for example, on your hardware, would you go and spend the money on another storage array? Or would you actually go with hyperconverged and build a cloud operating model and put you in the future while saving a ton of money? Mm -hmm. You're probably going to do the latter, more of. That's our bread and butter selling model. So we are certainly investing and in leaning in more on that front. Our retention rates are very strong. And so when we see strong unit economics, it gives us confidence to continue investing in both go-to-market to acquire new workloads, as well as to continue to expand the, uh, the capabilities of our platform. So you're seeing us invest in adding a lot of new features. You're going to see us an announce even more features when you have uh, in our upcoming versions of our software. And so it's both an investment in R&D and in sales and marketing. Now, I want to say our general expense envelope has not changed since the beginning of the year. Um, we're basically, you know, we're adjusting to the, the, the macro environment, making adjustments in terms of some people are doing better, so we're doubling down there. Some projects are not going as well, so we're pulling back and, and investing elsewhere. But basically, 
we, because we feel so bullish about the future, we're investing heavily for our growth. Uh in essence, part of this, they're trying to get customers to rip out what they've got and replace it with newer technology. And that is going to be particularly important, leaning in even to sales and marketing where they think they can gain share during this period, Dave. Yeah, it's an interesting time when companies are looking to cut costs if they invest in the right technology, um, you are essentially saving costs down the line. That's the pitch a lot of these enterprise software companies are making. Let's get to a news update now. Seema Modi, good morning. Good morning. Here's what's happening at this hour. As you just saw, President Biden is celebrating the tentative deal to avoid a rail strike that could have cost the U.S. economy billions of dollars. He welcomed negotiators to the White House following 20 hours of straight talks leading up to the deal. Jobless claims unexpectedly fell in the latest week to their lowest level since May. Meanwhile, retail sales posting a surprise gain in the month of August as Americans spent more on vehicles, groceries and clothing. However, some analysts say the report does show some signs of weak demand. There was a downward revision to July sales. Humana shares surging at this hour, up 7%. The company raising its profit outlook for the year, citing lower medical costs. Humana also gave an EPS guidance for 2025 that is well above estimates. And tennis legend Roger Federer says he is retiring. He won 20 Grand Slam titles and was ranked the number one player in the world for nearly five years in a row. Just incredible. Federer says his latest farewell tournament will be the Labor Cup in London next week. And guys, it comes just weeks after Serena Williams announced her plans to retire. Carl? Uh, we'll see about that. Yeah, <laughs> we'll see. There's still some theories out there. Thanks, Asima Modi. Meantime, Adobe's $20 billion acquisition of Figma today is just the tip of the M&A iceberg this year. So far, we've seen blockbuster deals from Microsoft, as you know, $69 billion for Activision Blizzard. Broadcom eyeing VMware, $61 billion, along with, quote, smaller deals. Private equity firms like Vista Equity Partners scooping up Citrix. That's $16.5. Toma Bravo, $10 billion for Anaplan. Google scooping up Mandiant for nearly six. The question for investors with all this money frothing around is who's next. Adobe's productivity play could spell some danger or fortune for other tech names that have lost steam this year like Asana or Samsara. Pretty interesting, John, especially when you also consider the concurrent pressure to buyback shares. Uh, and how, do, how, does, how does buyback and M&A coexist in this environment? Yeah, and I'm not saying that Asana or Samsara are going to do deals. They're still founder-led. I was just talking to the founder and CEO of Samsara a couple days ago. Um, but it's interesting the reasons why these deals are happening. We've been talking about both the defensive and uh, aggressive nature of this Adobe deal for Figma, opening up new markets, maybe transitioning uh, some existing users who are out there in the marketplace into a deeper relationship with their software. You know, if you look at a name like Procore, for example, which is in construction management, cloud, and, and SaaS, and you look at something like uh, an Autodesk, right, which is in another part mm -hmm. of that value chain, do, do you can see how some of these things could hypothetically uh, fit together and how there's perhaps yeah. more value in some of these uh, market caps that have been beaten down than is apparent right now? And not just public markets. We've seen that sort of come through to private markets as well. It does lag, but you're seeing a lot of the valuations either through funding rounds or internal 409As come down. And that was Figma, right, before reaching the public markets because that IPO window remains firmly shut, decided to go this route. Um, you look at another company, John, like a Databricks maybe, which is also very loved, but also a large company um, loved by the enterprise tech community. Um, could they potentially have an exit for their VCs through M&A activity. It does raise a question, which we talked about earlier, Carl, is that regulatory environment, who actually has the money or the stock price to get such deals done? Right, and the patience, right? Uh, that, we, we heard that from day one when the Activision deal was announced, John. Yeah. Um, meanwhile, M&A is not the only part of tech that's under the watchful eye of regulators. A firm is in the CFPB sites this morning. What that means for the stock as shares sit 87% below their highs of the year. We're back in a moment. Don't go away. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you 
like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. We've been talking about a retest of 3,900 for the past few days. We're not that far away, 19 points, as we're down uh, two-thirds of a percent on the S&P. NASDAQ, though, bearing the brunt of today's selling D, down more than a percent. Yep. Meanwhile, the crypto winter hasn't scared everyone away just yet. Financial companies, Charles Schwab, Citadel Securities and Fidelity, are joining forces and launching a new crypto exchange, EDX Markets. The new venture also backed by Sequoia Capital and Paradigm, one of the largest crypto VC firms. Joining us now, the CEO of that new exchange, Jamel Nazar-Larry, who was formerly an executive at Citadel. Uh, thanks for being with us today. Now, EDX bills itself as a safer, faster, more efficient way of trading digital currencies. Explain to our audience how you are different than a crypto native exchange? Well, I think one of the key differences is we're not going to have direct retail accounts. We're going to be the venue for uh, investors who want to trade through their trusted intermediaries like, uh, like Fidelity Schwab or any other retail broker dealer. Well, and you also have an impressive bench of executives that come from the traditional finance world. Do you need more crypto leadership? Do you have anyone who has been operating in the crypto space exclusively um, for, for years? Uh, we do. We do. We have a mix of people from traditional finance as well as those that are crypto native and have a ton of digital experience. Any names? Uh, so uh, we announced yesterday... Um, that, uh, that our general counsel is uh, David Foreman, who is formerly uh, head of uh, legal for Fidelity Digital Assets. We've got uh, Tony Naroder, who was at Arisax, another digital exchange. And then we have a couple of hires that are finishing off their, uh, their current uh, employment. Uh, both of them have uh, extensive digital experience and we'll announce those names as soon as they, uh, they finish their last days. Okay, and Jamil, um, you guys are an exchange, but you need someone to actually hold the coins. You guys are leveraging a network of select digital custodians. Um, what That's does that right. mean, and which ones are you using, and how did you decide on them? Yeah, so uh, again, we're we're uh, we're going to announce one of our custodians is Fidelity Digital Asset, and uh, we have a second custodian that we're going to announce shortly. Um, the one of the key differences between our exchange and many of the other exchanges out there, in addition to not having direct accounts, is that we're not going to be vertically integrated. And so we're not going to have the same conflicts of interest and other uh, issues that some of the digital exchanges have. We're going to have separate custody and uh, an exchange uh, matching. So How do you judge? What we're Sorry, Sorry yeah, especially with what we've seen just over the last few months, you've seen some digital wallets go bust. People can't take out their actual Bitcoin or Ether, whichever coin it is. So how do you decide which ones are trustworthy and safe, especially if you're leveraging a network of them? Look, we go through a really extensive process and we're finding someone uh, that we feel really good about. And I think that I think you point out that, um, you know, there are uh, there are some issues with the market structure in, uh, in the current digital asset environment. And what we're planning to bring is many of the investor protections, um, many of the most efficient processes from traditional finance uh, into the digital world so that we can reduce costs and give investors uh, much uh, more efficient uh, execution, which will allow them to keep more of their dollars. 
Jamil, thanks for being with us and breaking that down for us. Jamil Nazarali of EDX, thank you. Meantime, our live sports, the future of streaming. We will discuss with the NFL's media and business chief in just a moment. Tech Check is back in two. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. By now, pay later players like a firm are facing higher funding costs, lower consumer spending, and now potentially more regulation, at least when it comes to the Consumer Financial Protections Bureau. Kate Rooney joins us with the latest. Kate. That's right, Dee. The agency really wants lenders like Affirm, Klarna, Afterpay, for example, to be regulated more like credit card companies and plans to issue some new rules around that. In a report out this morning, the CFPB calling out consumer risks around installment loans. It highlights a lack of consistency across some of those providers, late fees as well, and says lenders often don't give credit info to some of the reporting agencies, meaning they might not have the full picture of someone's liabilities. Finally, data harvesting, since many of these apps and lenders are now really app and website driven. The CFPB director telling reporters that generally there has been separation between banking and commerce, but as big textile business practices are adopted, in payments, that separation can go out the door, as he put it. The report also shows some of the growth in the sector. Americans took out $24 billion worth of loans just last year. That was a tenfold increase from 2019. Amid that growth, though, there's also been a lot of new margin pressure. The CFPB points to a drop in revenues from merchant discount fees and some of the increased credit losses as well. A firm in Klarna responding, saying that they give lower-cost options to consumers, they work with regulators, the report does acknowledge some of the lower costs. Shares of a firm, though, down roughly 75 percent or so this year. And then we had Klarna's valuation also get slashed by about 85 percent. Back to you guys. So, Kate, maybe not surprisingly, a firm shares, they're actually up half a percent. And if you read between the lines, there wasn't actually a clear call for yep. action. Yep. We know that regulators <laughs> move incredibly slow. And also, I mean, it wouldn't necessarily be a bad thing. One of yep. the knocks against buy now, pay later is that you can't use it to build credit. Yes, absolutely. And it's interesting, the CFPB doesn't really regulate these lenders right now. So the question is, will this give them mo more oversight? And companies like Affirm would argue that they're okay with that. They want to work with the regulators, and they have in the past, not to mention gives consumers lower-cost options and more opportunities to build credit if, in fact, they report. And it's also not consistent. So Affirm versus Klarna versus Afterpay, which is one of the yeah. issues that the regulators are calling out here. And we've talked to some of these regulators on the show. They don't yeah. necessarily love the legacy players, the credit card companies, because they have their own set of issues. So what is the most likely thing to come out of this? When are we going to get it? I know that's a big question. Yeah, that, Probably is, don't know. that is a big question. And we should mention that MasterCard, JP Morgan, Amex are also getting into buy now, yeah. pay later. So it's clearly consumer driven. This is what especially younger consumers want. You look at the all-out growth. So it's not going away. So they're not going to shut it down in any way. Companies like Affirm and Klarna will still exist. The timing, though, is the big question. It took you know, six months or so for this report right. to come out. But new rules, and also when do those get implemented? Does it take an act of Congress? What's going to happen? And then there's Apple. I am yeah. so fascinated by what they're trying to do in this space, and that yeah. is use their own balance sheet. So they wouldn't actually be under the purview of regulators, would they? Or how does that work? That's a great question in terms of how their balance sheet is interacting here. It's interesting they're not really using the partnership model that we yeah, see in FinTech no a lot. Right. So it's interesting that Apple's not really being called out here when they talk about big tech practices, although data harvesting and yeah. privacy is obviously something that Apple has taken a stance on and said, we're not going to do that. You'd be shocked if that didn't apply to payments as well. But one of the things, too, for these FinTechs and banks in general it's been a pretty low-margin business, but as interest rates go up, that could also be a boost for these guys. If they're holding consumer cash on the balance sheet, higher interest rates right. tends to be more profitable. But it's getting more competitive out there. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see it roll out. Thanks, Thanks Kate. Carl.
Uh, meantime, guys, let's get a gut check on Pin Duo Duo. Bernstein naming the, top, the stock a top pick for Q3 of this year, adding, quote, to say Pin Duo Duo has been an enigma would be a considerable understatement, but beyond management's uh, vague picture of the future, Bernstein says Pin Duo Duo has executed strongly and they expect that strength to continue. The stock, a rare tech name in positive territory for the year, up over 20% since January. 90% of analysts are calling it a buy. Uh, Dow is down about 75, still hovering just above 3,900. Back in a moment. Sports rights are definitely in focus as a new NFL season gets underway. Monday night's game smashing ESPN viewership records. Our Julia Borston joins us now to discuss it all with a very special guest. Hi, Julia. Hi, Carl. That's right. I'm joined by Brian Rolap. He's chief business and media officer for the NFL. Brian, thanks so much for joining us today ahead of your big game tonight on Amazon. Thanks, Julia. Thanks. Sorry about that. It is a good game tonight. Thanks for having just, me. Just glad to have <laughs> your audio there. So um, let's talk a little bit about viewership, overall viewership, before we dig into the Amazon question. Viewership up 5% in the first week. What's driving that, and do you think those gains will continue? Well, look, I think what's driving it, it's pretty simple, is we had a fantastic weekend of football. I think this is one of the best opening weekends we can think of as far as action on the field. I mean, we had seven games were decided by a, a field goal. That's the most I think we've ever had in a kickoff weekend. We have 11 games going into the fourth quarter were within a score. So when the football is good, I think it's tried and true. People will watch. And so they not only watched, but they watched longer. Um, so so the those were for us. The, the, the question, the, the, though, Brian, is how many people are going to be watching on Amazon? I know there are a lot of concerns that ratings are going to drop for these Thursday night games, far below the 16 million people who tuned into the games when they were on Fox last year. How low do you expect those numbers to drop for these Amazon games, and what will it take to start scaling that digital viewership? Yeah, look, I think um, I don't know what the number will be, but we fully expect it to be low, uh, below broadcast. To me, Julia, this is not uncommon or not unlike when in 1987 the NFL put a package of games on a little-known network at the time called ESPN. And ESPN was in 45 million homes at the time. Um, we did not expect to have broadcast-type ratings then. I don't think we do. But for us, we think about this much more long-term. I think looking back on that decision to put Monday Night Football on, on ESPN was a smart one, and I think this one will hold up as well in the sands of time. So we're not obsessed about the number. We think it'll be lower. But we have full confidence in Amazon that that number will grow. And given the trends in digital, I think these uh, digital numbers will at one point, uh, I can't tell you when, will will merge with the same viewership of television. That's just the growth of digital that we all see. Yeah, there's no doubt that more viewing is moving over to streaming, but it's there's also no doubt that a lot of the tech companies that are looking at your media rights, including NFL Sunday Ticket, um, all the rights that are up for grabs right now are going to be watching these ratings very carefully. What's the status of your negotiations with some of the assets uh, that are available now, Sunday Ticket? Who's in the lead? Is it Google YouTube? Is it uh, Apple or Amazon? Who's likely to, to get those rights? Well, I, I'd love to handicap it for you, but but I can't and won't. But I will tell you, um, we've got a lot of good of alternatives. We've been having uh, conversations with the market for some time. Since I've been here, it's probably some of the more complex uh, and strategic conversations we've had. So we are taking our time. We do believe, and we've said publicly, that we think Sunday Ticket is a package that is ripe for innovation. And we think digital will do that. So whatever you see and whenever we announce what we're going to do, I think you will see a much more digitally focused Sunday ticket. I think you'll also see as we're making plans to take our owned and operated media assets, NFL Network and Red Zone Channel into a digital environment as well. We see the same trends everybody else does. Our fans are increasingly spending time on digital and we will be there with, with uh, fantastic products to serve them. Well, we'll watch to see which of those tech giants buys up those rights to Sunday Ticket. Another new launch is NFL Plus. How has that been doing? How many subscribers or users do you have? And what's your plan for that business? It's been doing great. As, as, as many of you may or may not know, NFL Plus is our first step, and it is a step 
uh, into direct-to-consumer, uh, where you can get archived NFL content, you can get all of your in-market games on a mobile phone and tablet. Uh, these are rights we've carved out for some time, knowing that we were going to move into direct-to-consumer and digital. Uh, we're very happy with it. Um, we're on plan. Um, uh, we don't share the numbers publicly, but we, we feel good where we are and we're on plan. And the important thing is we have, look, we have a media strategy that is based on reach. We have broadcast contracts we're very happy with. What you see with NFL Plus and what you'll see with Sunday Ticket and some of other assets is a push into what we see will be the future, which will be a combination of TV linear distribution along with digital distribution. So uh, we're very happy where we are now. Well, thanks so much for joining us ahead of the big game on Amazon tonight. I understand you're about to get on a plane with Jeff Bezos, so we'll let you go. Brian, thanks so much for joining us. All right, Julia, good to see you. Julia, thanks so much for bringing that to us. Uh, one more thing in the show before we go. Uh, if you're struggling to return to office, well, so is Tesla, and not for the reasons that you may expect. CNBC out with a deep dive on the company's struggles after CEO Elon Musk informed employees they'd be expected in office a minimum of 40 hours a week. Three months later, Employees, they have come in, but there's just not enough space. Employees of the company's San Francisco office telling CNBC that a shortage of chairs, desk space, parking spots, and more has forced the company to set staggered in-office schedules, with some workers even taking phone calls outside due to the crowd. Uh, guys, I don't hate this. I mean, it tells us that Tesla hasn't been spending huge on monitors and new computers. They've been scaling back <laughs> office space. <laughs> it does tell you sort of when the CEO wants people to come in, though, maybe not everyone is on board or in line. Yeah, it would help. It would help if there were spots available. I mean, I guess to the extent that there's room in the parking lot, people can work in their cars, right? I mean, you can you can plug in, like the car, plug the car in and then plug in. <laughs> to the car and then I mean even Tesla's got an extra monitor there you go there you go <laughs> uh, one thing we haven't discussed guys was this piece in the journal yesterday uh, John that the company's uh, pausing its plans to make battery cells in Germany as they look to the US try to get some of those credits from the inflation reduction act yeah um, well you know it's, it's it's funny how federal policy helps sometimes we'll, we'll see if Elon actually gets that invite to the White House um, who knows what he'll say, but yeah. It, yep. it helps. Well, hey, Buttigieg said at code last week he would hug him, so we'll see if that happens too. Uh, <laughs> overall, we are uh, testing 3,900 once again. Let's get to the half. You've been listening to CNBC's Tech Check. You can always catch us live weekdays at 11 a.m. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.